All right, here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Science in between. Welcome back. Scott and Ollie. He's Scott. Uh, I'm Ollie. He's Ollie. Yeah. Oh, sorry. We stepped over each other on that That's one. Okay. They, they That's know, okay. They know how high quality of a production this is. Yep. Professionals to a fault is how we are often described. Yeah. So the, what's emphasis on the fault part? Just the secret behind the magic here. Oh, we yeah. recorded the show before the show. We did. And that's going to be next week's episode. No, it's going to be this week's episode. Uh, I I know. I think we're going to release this. Oh, we're swapping them. Yes. Okay. Or yes. we're down the road sometime. I don't know. We're going to, it's, we're going to release that at some it's, point. It's coming. It's coming. Be warned. Something's yeah. going to appear in your feed and it's going to blow your it's mind. It's absolute nonsense. Just nonsense. I mean, just nonsense. I mean, yeah. That's a little strong. But okay. Yeah, so uh, Scott and I got together recently uh, face-to-face in the real world, IRL, FTF, F2F. Yeah, F2F. Yeah, I believe F2F. Do people do that still? I mean, you just did and you're a person. but I mean- I don't know. Like, do, uh, do like young people? No, I, probably not. I, I'm probably. busy uh, trying to uh, incorporate the word Riz into yes. my, <laughs> just for my personal along, advocation. Along with every boomer <laughs> and Gen Z no, person I, in the world. No, I'm doing it to be ironic around uh, my children. They, they all are. Yeah. All those people are doing it for the same reason you are. And all of them are being treated the same way, which is as. as with scorn? Yeah. With scorn. <laughs> <laughs> it is great. I like to pair it sometimes with Delulu, which is also <laughs> it's Do you ever great. say out of pocket, but mean it the way that kids mean it instead of the way we mean it? I don't think I've ever said out of pocket ever. Okay. Yes, yes, and you have. Did you pay did you pay did your university pay for that or did you pay out of pocket? I don't think I would say that. Okay. I'm a person and I just did, but kids say that and they mean something entirely different, but this is not a show about, I don't know what this show is about actually, but it's definitely not about, um, old people adopting young people's slang ironically to try and be funny old people. Is that what we're doing? No, it's not the point. It's not a dad joke thing. I think it is. Well, I mean, it is a dad joke, but that's not the point of the episode. The point is not. No, no, no the point of you adopting Riz is a dad joke thing. Oh, it's an absolute a- a dad joke okay. thing. All right. That's yeah. what I was saying. I wasn't no. saying this episode's a dad joke, though no. it probably is. No. It's no, it's not? The, or that Me using. That. Who's on first? <laughs> no. What's on that, second? Th- again, you with the updated cultural references. <laughs> oh, coming in hot with uh, in 1940s cultural what, what are you trying to say Abbott and Costello is not top of mind for most people? No, no, no. it's definitely not out of pocket. No, that was incorrectly used <laughs> and significantly damaged your riz. <laughs> First time I've ever used it. Yeah, and you used yeah. it wrong. So that's what, we, that's what we're hoping for. This is a learning opportunity. Yeah, I'm here for growth. So. What I thought was we we've often talked about uh, the, you know, our, you know, work with, you know, 
doing professional development and things like that. Um, you know, how we've been leading this stuff around the state, but we haven't really talked about the, like, cause you and I are still researchers. We're still engaged in doing educational research to some degree. Right. And you, I think work more closely with the science stuff and I work, you know, with other things. And I thought what we could spend a little bit of time today talking about is just stuff that the projects we have under, uh, underway, like you talked a little bit about, I think, we talked about simulations uh, an episode or two ago. You talked about uh, some work, some grant funded work you have around like developing uh, like earth systems, you know, earth simulations and models and things. Um, but what other kind of work do you, are you engaged in and, and, you know, and what kind of stuff do I do? And, you know, just because uh, we're active scholars, we're still trying to put stuff out there, create new knowledge, you know, put yep. stuff out there in the world, you know. Yeah, and, put stuff yeah. out there in the world. And have yeah. 15 people cite it. So, yes. <laughs> you know, it, the strange thing is like that the my most cited article is this uh, this thing on digital storytelling I wrote that's in the, uh, you know, a gifted, not a gifted, a middle level education journal from like 19, uh, not 19, 2010, yes. 2009. Yeah. You know, it's like by far my most cited article, which yeah. is b- bizarre. Yeah. So yeah. what, what are you work? What are you working on? What, what kind of stuff are you doing? Hey, you over there? <laughs> hey, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing to yourself? Um, well, I mean, should we sort of ping pong this back and forth and just talk sure. about different? So I can. I mean, you mentioned it, so I'll talk a little bit about it. So I had um, actually they both in terms of funding they both wrapped up now, but I had I've had actually three or four projects in this vein, which were around um, helping initially was around earth and space science teaching. And then the, that was the first one um, with my colleague, Tanya Furman and and Chris Palma and Laura Girton, all Penn state folks. Um, and then I was working with, um, with the folks at the Concord consortium um, on some projects around developing technologies to help kids better understand uh, geoscience phenomenon. So those were data visualizations and simulations um, around different things. Plate tectonics was two of the projects we're targeting plate tectonics specifically and sort of trying to, you know, a lot of the work that we do is about starting with a big phenomenon and then breaking, you know, breaking it into smaller investigations for kids to try and understand that phenomenon. And, and one of the big ideas, if not the big idea in earth science is plate tectonics. And like evolution and biology, it tends to get put at the very end um, and taught in a very specific way, which is usually based on the sort of historic data that we have, like where were the fossils found on different, you know, the fossils there, fossils found in Africa and also found in South America. Isn't that interesting? I wonder why that would be. Um, so stuff like that and seafloor spreading, you know, it's not that interesting to talk about the specific data, but the the core idea of those, while there was a technology component to them, was the idea that we want to flip that and start with giving them some real uh, real data about plate tectonics and the fact that parts of the earth are moving in different directions to each other and using that as a fundamental way to build up towards understanding of things like how do mountains get built? Where do rocks come from? Um, because that's how geoscientists think about it is, is they think of rock Genesis, which is how rocks form mostly now in terms of, of their 
depositional environments. Well, they've always thought about it that way, but but in the places where they're, those rocks are created, and a lot of rocks are created at plate boundaries. So, um, so it was it it was a project to try and not only develop technologies, but also sort of upend or reorganize the way that we think about curriculum and learning to focus on big phenomenon first and then break that down into smaller pieces that kids could investigate. Yeah. So those, those are both grant funded and they're but winding down. Yeah. They both, they both just, they both ended this past fall. So um, yeah, they were both national science foundation funded projects and then in between. So the, there were two around geoscience and then, and then in the sandwich of those two with the Concord consortium was one that focused on climate related phenomenon. So we were specifically looking at um, wildfires, hurricanes and flooding and similarly developing simulations and online curriculum to help kids learn those things. And all that stuff's freely available at Concord. So if you're a science nerd and you're interested in it, you can you can go get it. And actually, one of the links, and this came up yesterday in, in when I was doing my presentation at the SAS conference, um, is the the curriculum, open sciad curriculum that is getting used a lot, especially in Pennsylvania, which is focused on Everest and how do mountains grow and shrink. Um, they use the uh, Seismic Explorer, which is one of the tools from those curriculum that was um, a data visualization around earthquakes and, and uh, volcanoes. So um, so these tools are out there and people are using them and they they are really cool. Um, and but we research both how do kids learn from them, but also how do teachers use them and how does that help transform their practice? That's cool. And the, what a like a bunch of publications come out of these or like, um, uh, yeah, some there's some publications that have come out already and there are more. I mean, one of the things that is the nature of these large projects is a lot of the publications tend to come after the projects are done because when right. you're doing the projects, you're mostly doing the projects and collecting a lot of data. And then as the projects start to wind down, that's where you start getting more into the data analysis and the publishing. So, um, so yeah, we, two of my doctoral students, so Brandon Comrath, um, is interested he's more the tech person so he's interested in sort of looking at at the learning and the technology and how do simulations work in helping kids um, develop their own understandings using simulations as data and sort of thinking tools um, so there's some publications coming from him soon uh, and then jennifer jackson um is another one of my doctoral students who's finishing up and she's looking at um professional learning and and specifically people who are learning this uh, teachers who are learning about these curriculum but as part of the the professional learning they're also learning about DEIB and how that should and can be incorporated into these into these kind of sophisticated learning environments so yeah so those cool. are those publications are coming soon to a to a journal near you and yeah, Jennifer Jackson's got a, a comic book name you know she sounds like she should be a superhero. She, she does. Yeah. Yep. Like she Peter does. Parker. Peter, you know. Yeah. It's the alliteration thing that really. Sure. Yeah. Jennifer Jackson. Jennifer Jackson. Like she yeah. should be like, like the next spider woman or something. Yeah. You know? Or like a pop star or something. Sure. Yeah. 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 Well, I, my work, like I haven't done a work in science ed in a, in a, in a hot minute because, you know, I just, I think it's just the nature of, you know, how things work. I mean, a small, I'm in a smaller you know, institution. I mean, there are people doing science education work. It's just, uh, I, you know, there's only a handful of classes and a handful of, you know, people. So typically where I, 
go is, you know, because of the nature of teaching a four, four at a, you know, small liberal arts college, mm-hmm. you look for opportunities that kind of tie into your teaching, you know, because then you can, sure. or, um, and, or the other work you do. And so like my work has been around like professional development and supporting teacher educators and, and things over the last, you know, probably decade. And so most of my work is around, um, mm-hmm. so I have a, uh, I would say three active research projects going on right now, uh, two with friend of the show, Leslie Gates, and then another with uh, um, my mentee, Abdul Ibrahim, um, mm-hmm. who's, I guess what was, he's a fourth year faculty member at our institution. So first, I'll talk about the first two with uh, Leslie first. Um, the one is around, Leslie and I have been working with like educator ethics. We do a lot of uh, professional development with uh, our students, our teacher uh candidates around educator ethics. And this is the stuff I've been working on, you know, probably since like, I don't know, like decades, you know, been authoring content for doing professional development. But we're looking at, you know, the new model code of ethics, which was just recently adopted by Pennsylvania, um, and and looking at how there's almost like a hierarchy of ethics that's communicated in the model code. Hmm. Um, And with the hierarchy, like almost like, you know, Maslow's hierarchy or anything like that, like any hierarchy, like there's, mm-hmm. you know, lower level stuff about like just being able to attend, like do the right thing. But then the higher order stuff is just like working on behalf of somebody else, like, mm-hmm. and that, that, um, you know, that's communicated through advocacy, like, and, and so Leslie and I've been uh, looking at advocacy as like a disposition for teachers and a disposition um, and wondered if that's like something that was communicated across different uh, uh, teaching standards, like teacher professional development standards. Like like if we're preparing teachers, is advocacy something we're expecting for our, our new teachers? And so she and I did a big, huge like document analysis of different standards um, and saw how advocacy was communicated and whether advocacy was communicated across those standards. And that's actually something that's, uh, that article is in review right now, like looking at those standards. But beyond that, we wanted to see whether, um, you know, were teachers engaged in this work? And if they're engaged in this work, like what kinds of challenges and experiences do they uh, encounter? And so we've interviewed like a dozen different teachers um, from a bit, like different content areas, um, you know, some, are, some in this area, some uh, um, outside of the central Pennsylvania area who have acted as advocates on behalf of something, right? Whether it's a student or whether it's, you know, I won't get into the, all the details, Um of the people who we've interviewed because that we're still analyzing that data. But I will say that it is pretty, um, it's pretty interesting, uh, mm-hmm. at least to me, because, you know, we have a, our schools are becoming more and more political spaces, whether we like them or not. I mean, it's like, I've been mm-hmm. like listening to the grapevine podcast and if you uh, haven't heard it, check it out because I think it gives you a really good indication of how, political uh, educational spaces have become. And I think that we as educators, whether working in K-12 environments or working in higher ed environments, are going to be put in positions where we're going to have to advocate on behalf of either a student or a curriculum or, you know, some practice, like whether, you know, like if you were like, hey, I want to use, you know, ambitious science teaching, that may be something you have to advocate for. You know, yeah. and so, yeah. um, yeah, 
and so in our work, we've adopted, you know, a definition of advocacy that sort of has been driving a lot of our work. And it's like advocacy, and this is actually emerged out of social work. And I'm going to read this as uh, Sozin and Column. Um, they define advocacy as an attempt having a greater than zero probability of success by an individual or group to influence another individual or group to make a decision that would not have otherwise been made and that concerns the welfare or interests of a third party who is in a less powerful status than the decision maker. So that's a pretty encompassing, you know, advocacy definition. And so it mm-hmm. puts us in a position where like, okay, like you believe in this practice is beneficial for students and, you know, the school board or your principal or somebody else doesn't believe it, or, you know, I mean, there's tons of ways you can do this, but this is, you know, one aspect of the work that we're, uh, Leslie and I are, are doing is around nice. this advocacy piece. So yeah. I suspect that um, there's going to be ultimately, I, I think our goal, like if we're like to really say, hey, this is where we want to end up is um, some sort of curriculum or some sort of, you know, supports for how do we do this with teacher candidates? Like if this is something yeah. that we're like, is like, have you ever seen, received any training on how to be an advocate? Like not no. at all. And it's a, and it's something, but other content areas do this. Like social work teaches their candidates how to be advocates on behalf of their, sure. their folks. And that's, you know, that's something I think that we have to do a better job of. And that's what we're trying to be- do a better job of understanding it and understanding mm-hmm. some of the pitfalls and challenges um, and how it's communicated across all the different, you know, standards standard silos you yeah. know yeah nice Which, yeah yeah i so, mean i think i think that yeah and there's uh there's new state guidelines around that right Aren't around there? advocacy for, yeah for teacher education well no for ethics but do oh they yeah include yeah. advocacy yeah well they're based on the model code so they absolutely do include advocacy mm-hmm. which is really ironic because there are you know school boards currently who are adopting anti-advocacy policies for right. teachers right and yes. so like don't so in one state in one place you're hearing from the state who says hey this is the this is the standard advocacy yeah. is the standard if you're going to be an ethical teacher mm-hmm. you should advocate on behalf of your students also, also local, the school oh, board is telling you uh-uh. you cannot nope. advocate no so there's the rub there's the rub yeah. Nice. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the projects we're working on. And the other thing is like, I've been working on, um, you know, I, I was the, the professional development, part of the professional development teaching and learning center on campus for a bunch of years. And so I was really involved with faculty mentoring and that's become something that's sort of like moved out of that center and Leslie and I are involved with doing faculty mentoring on campus and specifically around mid-career faculty and seeing some of the challenges they're facing. And so she and I have an IRB um, research project, an IRB approved research project, doing some interviews with um, mid-career faculty to see what their needs are and how to best support them, um, which is because we have some folks who are like got to that mid-career stage, which is also just like that definite, that term mid-career is loosely defined in the literature. Like yes. what does it mean to be mid- mid-career? Sure. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Right. No, I mean, and you would think like, well, the, uh, there are obvious criteria like, oh, are you an associate professor as opposed to an assistant or a full professor? But 
but lots of people are, you know, that's not necessarily, there are lots of um, senior people who are still associate professors. Right. Right. So it, you know, what, what does mid career really look like? It's yeah. I, I can imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the other projects, the project that I'm, I'm working on now that's sort of moving forward is, um, and I think I've talked about this, uh, at least the, the underlying, um, part of the project on the, on the podcast before, but I have a really close group of collaborators here in state college, my, my teachers that I work with at the park forest middle school. And, um, and, uh, we, I've been for years trying to figure out a good way to capture that experience. And so, um, along with, um, JD McCausland, who's one of my doctoral students who graduated a couple of years ago and was part of helping me sort of rethink and redesign, the, the two teacher education courses and the program, um, we're writing a narrative analysis. So we're asking people who've participated. I've developed this over the last six or you know, it's almost seven years now, um, had this embedded methods course where I'm teaching science in a middle school at, with these folks. So they're basically helping me. They're not basically, they are helping me. They become like my teacher colleagues, um, in helping support these students learning how to teach. And, um, and so I asked them and I asked my students that have passed through that particular version where they were out in the field to write some narratives about their experience and how it's impacted their thinking around teaching and so on and so forth. So uh, we have, I think we're at like 30 or 30, somewhere between 30 and 35 of those narratives now by different people who've participated in the project. And we're analyzing that to try and um, essentially, at least the first article that we're trying to write is about um, is about a different version of scaling. So educational research, there's a lot of emphasis, especially when it comes to funded projects, on scaling. How are you going to take this thing that you designed and make sure lots and lots of people use it? So in my other life where I'm doing the online curriculum stuff, scaling is really easy because you just, well, it's not really, I shouldn't say it that way. I shouldn't be dismissive about it, but it's relatively straightforward. You put these free curriculum materials up online, people download them. I think at last count, there was something like 60 to 70,000 students a, a year using those curriculum materials. It's probably more by now. Um, if you include the open Syed stuff. So, um, so that has, you know, that's very scalable. Curriculum is a very scalable thing. Um, pedagogy, teaching practices are much harder. Um, so this is about, you know, the article is about what does it look like to scale slowly, to take 15 years um, to work together to try and develop some really interesting teaching practices. And then how does that that intensive focus in a small space that includes pre-service teachers lead to ripple effects where those people go out into the world and then um, some of them get hired nearby and then those schools start to change and maybe I, I get to play part of a role in that change and so on and so forth. So um, so that's what that research is about and that's still emerging. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to get myself back into the teacher ed work, um, which I I've sort of haven't paid as much attention to recently. And Actually, one thing related to you and I, I was recently trying to pull all the data off. I have all these old digital video um, recordings, like tapes, and I'm trying to sure. get them into digital format. And I have a video, a DV recording that was in the mix with all these, because I've been video recording in my classroom 
forever, really, um, in my teacher ed classroom. But I found a video of our little group, the Invisible College group, um, when we were on our research retreat. And so there's video of us from 2005. Wow. Um, and it's, yeah, it's funny to see us as little little babies, you yeah. know, almost 20 years ago. And, and uh, you know, it, yeah, so that, but I'm I'm trying to figure out what to do with that data. That's my next project is how do I think about looking back over my own professional career and, and the way that I've taught science teaching since, you know, 2004, 2005, all the way through 2023. And how has that changed and my thinking changed? So that's something I got to figure out how to write about too. Yeah, that's cool. To the, uh, I'd, I'd like to see some of those videos. Yeah. Maybe not. I, oh, Maybe I was, I was going to, no, once I get them digitized, I was going to send them to you. So you and Brett are, are a uh, Brett Criswell, friend of the show, Brett Criswell, who also works with us. Um, uh, are both in that. Uh, he's, at, he's at Westchester. He's teaching he's, at Westchester that's now. That's right. He's faculty at Westchester now. And I don't think Jason, Jason was with us, but I think he came late. So I don't think he was in that particular. Yeah, I think he was, he flew up. Was this at the yeah, retreat up in He flew in himself Chita- up. Yeah. He flew to Chautauqua. Yeah. yeah. And, and Jesse and Amber were there. So it was a, yeah, yeah it was a, it's, yeah, it's cool to look back. It seems back like at a lifetime stuff. ago. Yeah, wow. It was, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the other, project that I have ongoing right now is uh, something around what's called the Tetsies. Um, the Tetsies are the uh, teacher educator technology competencies. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's specific. A yeah, it is a list. Teacher educator technology competencies were developed by SITE, which is the Society for Information Technology and Teacher Education, and ISTE, which is the uh, International Society for Technology and Education. So they got together organizations that created a list of what teachers, teacher educators should know. Like, so they created a list of 12, you know, competencies and underneath those 12 competencies were separate things that, you know, a list and buried in a list. Mm. Right. So here's some of the things, uh, teacher educators will design instruction that utilizes content specific technologies to enhance to, uh, teaching and learning. So that's the, that's a competency. And then underneath mm-hmm. that competency uh, is evaluate content specific technology for teaching and learning. And so there's lists embedded in lists, right? Sure. Um, hierarchical but, lists. Hierarchical lists. And so one of the things that we looked at, um, so my, my, uh, my mentee, Abdul Ibrahim, um, he's an educational technology dude. And I was really just looking for a project that we could work on together that would kind of kind of be in a space that, um, you know, overlaps our interests. And he's a big, you know, survey guy. And so um, he was wanted to, like his dissertation was developing a survey, an instrument that could be used in, um, with, around technology. It was, I think, a TPAC based thing. And then, um, and then we were talking about the Tetsis. He came at it from a conference. He was at a conference that was being presented at, and I was at another conference and I saw it. I was like, hey, this is you know stuff that I think is is interesting. I wonder where uh, where the work is going to go from this because this the Tetsis were developed in 2017 and so they've been kind of floating around out there for a bit. Yeah. And so um, then some research came out right after that where they were interviewing, not interviewing, surveying, excuse me, um, surveying um, teacher educators like professors like you and me and and others and trying to see, you know, okay, can we develop an instrument that could assess you know, 
teacher educators competencies in these areas. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, there was an article published about this thing was, you know, developed and also went through all of the, you know, um, you know, the research based things to say that the survey is a, mm -hmm. an instrument that can be used. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and reliable, valid and reliable. Absolutely. And so it was validated. And, and so we're, you know, wondering whether this could be something that a tool that could be used with, with our mentors, because mentors are teacher educators, right? They're mentors are yep. they're out there. They're field based teacher educators, but they're teacher educators. And so while this instrument was supposed to be this reliable, valid instrument, we used it with our, um, our folks, our mentors, and it really was a, a pretty poor tool for mm -hmm. with with that population. It mm -hmm. didn't because um, a lot of it was self reported. It was like, and so um, Abdul and I are working on trying to develop a, a better instrument. And mm -hmm. so we're using because the the work that mentor teachers do is really around not just around technology and technology and educational technology, but it's really about scaffolding and mentoring. Um, you know, our teacher candidates to be able to use this stuff and do this stuff. And so we have developed an instrument um, that's currently like we're trying to, you know, gather some data on it um, that takes the TETSIs and connects them to cognitive apprenticeships um, phases. Mm -hmm. So that's an early episode that we talked about with cognitive apprenticeship way back in the day. But there are different phases of cognitive apprenticeship that you, um, if you're engaging in mentoring someone into a practice, that like uh and so and that's what our teacher you know candidates are what's happening to them when they're out in the field right is they're being mentored and scaffolded into you know fuller participation mm -hmm. and so we've developed a, a series of questions that we're like you know going through and you know uh, right now we're collecting data so it's also an irb approved thing so you know all uh i that that's meaningful to some folks that you know, because it sure. like says, "Hey, this is actual real research," because it's been approved by somebody. You know, research. <laughs> it's just not like us playing around. Supposed to that right? other stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I don't know. It's a. It's something. You know. Yeah. Nice. So, I mean, we uh we got the uh that the original work published in like a local like a statewide journal, mm -hmm. um, the Pennsylvania Teacher Educator, um, but. You know, this one we're hoping to, and we've presented on a couple of different um, areas in a couple of different conferences, but our hope is to, you know, at least for, you know, get this thing a little bit more, you know, a little bit more juiced from it, you know, we'll see. Yeah. 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 You nice. know, I'm not really that into survey work, you know, on this, but it is something that I'm, I'm interested in the topic. Um, I'm not really interested in creating the the Drayon survey of this, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but I know that Abdul is like this is work that I I really enjoy sharing with Abdul because mm -hmm. it's like it's a really good opportunity for me to collaborate with him on something and yeah. something you know. And I really don't like. I will say his expertise is absolutely around you know quantitative work, you mm -hmm. know. And mine is not. And so I rely a lot on him to be able to, you know, do the heavy lifting there. And so um, if we can get a really cool survey out of this, you know, that'd be awesome. You know? Yeah, for sure. You know? Cool. Well, that's exciting. And and he's, but he's a junior faculty member already. So this is not, you're not, support, you're mentoring him, not in a, in a doctoral student way, but in a no. fellow doctoral 
right way. he is he is an early career faculty i think he's up he yes he's going up for promotion and tenure now okay and so this is work that we've been engaged with since uh, like before the pandemic and so we collected data during the pandemic or right after the pandemic and we've had a couple publications out of that and presentations out of that and then um you know this is work that's kind of evolved from that so nice. Um, yeah. And honestly, it's been work that he and I have been able to share, which is kind of cool. Like I would say if you're mentoring somebody with – if you're you're a faculty member or a teacher um, who is mentoring somebody who's like new, looking for opportunities to collaborate on something, like some shared work, yeah, I think is it's probably the best thing to do. Yeah. Like because, you know, even if it's something like like – you know, the Tetsis, you know, there's something, but, you know, am I, do I think it's the greatest list in the world? Probably not, you know? Mm-hmm. And I would say Abdul probably would agree. It's not the greatest list in the world. Would we add other things to it? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, or we would probably think that lists, throw the list out the window, right? Yeah. Um, but I think having shared work where, you know, because it's the conversations that come out of the shared work or the, you know, the, um, you know, and even just helping to, you know, help them understand the process at our institution of mm-hmm. like going through IRB, you know, going through and finding out like, how do you get a project off the ground? Like now, now he is like, absolutely now in his fifth year doing all this really cool work. Um, but some of it's been, you know, helped because I've, this project has helped to kind of like get him in to like meeting some people and like, you know, engaging with different processes. And yeah, I mean, he's doing yeah. great. So this this project I would think is on in his his locus of work. It is just a yeah. thing because he's got all this other stuff going on too. Sure. You know? Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe that's something I mean that that makes me think of a couple things that we can't talk about today just for time reasons, but that we should, may want to consider. So one is sort of how to th- how to scholars think about a body of work like how do you think right. about what you do and who, what your scholarly identity is because i think that's a that's a thing that a lot of people struggle with sometimes yeah. like how do you choose projects how do you how do you craft uh something that you feel good about that represents you um and then i think the other one is like uh, that we sort of brought up in a joking way and you you in our previous episode and me sort of returning to that but but this idea of like the 15 citations thing, like what, what is the function of, of research and education and what role does it play and who does it serve and um, how do we think about it? I mean, I think it's, you know, it's, for me, it's a really interesting question. One that I'm thinking a lot more about as I become a elderly scholar who, who some, you know, some of that stuff matters a lot less to me in the sense that I don't have this, I don't have the pressure to publish that junior people do. I mean, I still get evaluated. That's still part of my evaluation. So I'm not going to stop doing research. Um, and there are, there are aspects of research that I find valuable. Um, but I think really starting to think about like what, what is research and education? Who does it serve and how can we think about it? I think is something you and I could take up and talk about. Yeah, we we could put a pin on that for another episode. Put a, put but a pin that. But I, I would say, well, we could talk about the the identity thing a little bit because I mean, I like I think in both of these situations, I mean, like I think you know, did you set out to create you know simulations? Like, mm-hmm. is that like was that ever a goal of yours? My goal, like, was it ever a goal of mine to 
you know, engage with like developing a survey or was right. it ever a goal of mine to develop, you know, qualitative work around mentoring, you know, or ethics or... or ethics. Yeah. Like the ethics thing I completely kind of fell into. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, um, and it's been a large part of my work for the last 15 years, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and honestly, I just fell into it. And, um, so how do we like, you know, decide what projects to pursue and what projects that you don't pursue. And, and I think those are worthwhile conversations because I think that, you know, for me, it's always been, I mean, I, and this sounds simplistic because you know mm -hmm. how much of a fatalist I am, um, I do. is that I, I really go, is this something I'm going to have fun with? Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is by, based on the people that I'm working with, you know, is it like yeah. people that I'm going to enjoy, you know, and at, so much of the projects I've, chosen to do or not chosen to do are based on is it something that is not just representative of you know my interests and the things i i see as important but also based on working with people that i enjoy working with you yeah. know and that's yeah. you and that's leslie and abdul and i could go through a list of people that i've worked with over the course of the last 15 20 years that have been like all people that because if you're going to spend a lot of time with somebody yeah. and like because you can be engaged with the work and if the person isn't going to like support you or if it's going to be something you're just going to be banging your head on uh, against the wall all the time, then mm -hmm. it's like like it should be something, you know, that's that's fun and meaningful. And, yeah, you know? for sure. Yeah, well, that's what I think. I mean, I do think this is a topic for a whole other thing because I think some people are very intentional about that. Like they're they sort of think about their projects in terms of like how what is my trajectory how where am i trying what are my big goals what am i how right. am i trying to get there um and then there are other people who are more opportunistic or however you want to describe it right where they're more like oh these are people i want to work with they're doing something interesting i'm just going to go do that thing with them um or this is a thing i'm interested in and other people seem to be interested in joining up with me that i like working with and so i'm going to do that thing um so, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, it's, I think it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting identity conversation about how do you end up being the person you've become and, uh, and I, right. yeah, I think, yeah. Well, I think that like you've been, I think a little bit more, you know, strategic from that pr perspective, maybe, I don't know. No, I mean, maybe, uh, but I, uh, no, I, I mean, maybe. Again, I think I don't I don't want to I don't want to waste this. I think this is a whole episode. I'd rather not talk about just a little bit. I think we could really dig into like because you All know, right. you know, you were part of my initial framing of my trajectory, right? You you were here at Penn State in the years that I was formative and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with myself, right? So right. that that video recording from 2005 is my my first summer as a faculty member. Um, so that, that was, you know, I mean, those are, or spring or whatever it was. Right. I mean, so, um, I think, I think it's a really interesting conversation that we could dig into a little more deeply. All right. Well, we'll put a pin in that and like revisit that cycle back around it, you yeah. know? So yeah. do you have another project that you're working on that like currently? Um, let's see. I don't think I really do have any other active projects right now i think that that you know the the one that i mentioned that's briefly about the 
what do I do with all this data that I have for me historically? I'm trying to figure that out, but that's going to be a, I mean, it may be nothing. I don't know. But, um, but uh, the idea of trying to think about how would you write about a teacher educator learning? I don't think there's a lot on teacher educator learning. There's a lot about teacher learning, right? But there's not a lot of publications about like how do teacher educators learn? What is that professional process right uh, like? And and how does it happen? Because there's very little professional learning for teacher educators. Um, you know, there's a few conferences where you can go and sort of listen to other people talk about stuff, but there's not, there's not like there is for teachers, like there's professional learning opportunities for teachers all over the place. Um, but how do teacher educators develop? What, how does that happen? It's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, a it's a weird sort of organic process that just sort of happens to you. And, um, sometimes, oftentimes you don't even have immediate colleagues to have conversations with this about, right. Especially if you're to, I'm, I'm lucky at a bigger institution, there tend to be more, but at smaller institutions, um, often there's only one science educator at the institution for elementary yeah. and secondary. And certainly if there's two, there's one in elementary and one in secondary, and they may not talk to each other very much. So it is like, it's a really interesting, I think, context to think about how learning happens. Yeah. So, and I think that in a lot of ways, the folks who do that, the teacher educators, they're not wor working in like the practice of teaching, teacher educating, right? There's a pedagogy for around educating teachers. Yeah, right. And I think that there's the assumption that if you can teach, then you can teach teachers, Right. Yeah, which is yeah. not true, which is not true. And and just as um, ill-informed as the idea that if you know your science, you can teach science, right? And right. It's a, it's a little worse in that case, because at least teaching and teaching teachers seems like it would naturally map onto itself. But um, but it turns out not so much. Well, um, I think that that, you know, I, we've talked a little bit about this semester and how I've I've been the leader of our professional development school. Mm -hmm. And I would say one of the things that has been a struggle is around feedback. Like, yeah. like how do teacher educators, whether they're, you know, professors on campus or whether they're mentors in the schools provide feedback to, for growth mm -hmm. or not, right. Yeah. In some cases or not. And then how do we help beginning teachers accept that feedback and put it into practice, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Those are skills. Those are skill sets. Those are, there's a ped pedagogy behind that, yeah. that needs to be developed, addressed, you know, like that. And we just think that, okay, if we can provide feedback on, you know, a paper or something that we can yeah. translate that directly to talking about practice or so and it's yeah. or so yeah it's not the same no no i agree and i think these are you know these are the direct challenges that we're grappling with with the professional learning that we're providing right because we are we are trying to teach people how to teach teachers right, right? so we are in that context and i don't think we've we've quite gotten a hold of that very well in a self-conscious way, like the work that we're doing isn't as self-consciously as it could be trying to say, 
hey, you all are learning to do something that is not teaching, that is different to that. And so how we teach you has to be different, but it also has to model the kinds of practices. It's exact. I mean, the analogy is exactly the same as us teaching people how to teach science. It's just that how to teach teachers is so different. That's why I think this, this thing that I did at, um, at the SAS Institute that, that we've been working on around, like, what, what are the conversations that you need to have with people who are going to teach teachers to help prepare them to have that conversation? And it's a, it's a very different conversation than how do you talk with people who are learning to teach science about teaching science different. Right. So yeah, it's a, it's a meta head. I know it's like, you know, uh, it's uh, like those dolls, the Russian dolls, dolls, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause we we have a couple of them around the house for, you know, the holidays for like, sure. But that, that's exactly what that is. It's like, open it up. It's like, Oh, 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 there's another doll inside. Yes. Good times. Woo. Woo. Hurt my brain. I think think that transitions to joys. So do you have a joy for this, this week? Oh, that, that is a, I would say I'm I'm like, I'm so solidly, this is like my time of the year. Like Christmas season is so solidly my time of the year. Like my, my wife's a big Halloween person and I am a big Christmas person. Mm -hmm. And, but we, she puts like sort of, boundaries on when we can start to celebrate christmas because if it was up to me it's like november 1st it would be like let's do it uh so after thanksgiving uh Mm -hmm. we were able to start listening to appropriate boundary yeah it is uh christmas music you know and so i have got to say of like there's so many really good christmas albums and each year i try to go find a new one and bring it into the house but i would say if if you're looking or like Christmas music that's gonna just like, you know, be awesome. That's like kinda like kinda be edgy, but kinda like the Sufjan Stevens Christmas, you know, album. Like I, I know yeah. that's probably what not people were expecting. They were expecting mm. like Charlie Johnny Mathis's Charlie Brown Christmas, which are great. Like Johnny Mathis has so many or Manheim Steamroller. Or Elvis. Yeah. Elvis has got like a ton mm. of Christmas yeah, albums. Yeah. I would say I would put the library of Sufjan Stevens Christmas stuff against any of them. All right. So have you have you heard any of it? No. I don't Check think a lick so, of it. All right. Spotify, it will be it'll be great for you. Okay. And like put it on. It is great. Cool. All right. Yeah. But yeah, you got to well, be like a Sufjan Stevens fan. So Yeah, because I, I have to say, like if you just go into Apple Music or Spotify and say, Oh, play me Christmas music, you get like, you know, the Britney Spears, Mariah right. Carey, all that stuff. And it, no. or you get like Bing Crosby, Nat King Cole, and I'm like, come on, is there nothing between like contemporary pop stars like trying to put a new spin on old hits and the old hits original singers like there's got to be other stuff out there that's right. not this no, no this is like he has his own take i mean but you, like i said you have to like Sufjan stevens if you're not a Sufjan stevens fan you're not i don't even know if i'm saying his name right so like yeah. it's probably somebody's gonna like like yeah. you know you're pronouncing his name incorrectly Brr. but maybe i am but i'm a huge fan and his okay. christmas album yeah actually he's got like four or five of them so it's like not wow. a, so you got a whole a whole oeuvre uh, yeah of christmas you know, I should, albums. All right. yeah i should i should fact check that okay so what's yeah. your what's your joy so my joy is a book um that was recommended me by a friend um 
uh, and the book is called Trust by Hernan Diaz. And it is, um, I, I almost don't want to say much about it because it's such an interestingly structured and organized book. But what I will say is it's about this couple, this fictional couple that are, that are uh, socialites and financiers in New York City in and around the the depression and the the um stock market collapse um but it's uh it's told in four parts so there are four sort of novels within novels and each part has a different quote unquote author to it um and they all tell ostensibly the same story from different perspectives and it's you know the, you've probably heard either seen movies or seen books that do this I just think he did it really well. It's really nice. It has a it has a wonderful reveal in it. Um and it's it's a really well written book and as much as it's about, you know, a part of history that I don't spend much time thinking about, it was fascinating. And um you know, it's it's uh yeah, it's really it's well really well written and I was just finishing the book last night and it had this quote and it I'm going to read it because it's very short. And it is about questions, and we talk about questions a lot. And um, it's written the the quote is from the wife of the couple, so Mildred, um, who wrote, "God is the most uninteresting answer to the most interesting questions." And I was sitting with that, thinking about how um, you know we have these deep, profound questions about our lives and about the nature of the world around us, and um, as a science person, I think those are really fascinating questions. And to say that they, that the answer to that is they were just created by, by somebody or something, not somebody, but, um, I just think, uh, is disappoints me because it feels like that ends our conversation. And, um, not that I'm anti-religious, I'm not saying that at all. Um, what I am saying is that, that I like having those conversations about, um, about really interesting, deep questions that often, um, you know, can be, can be short circuited by just saying, well, the answer is, um, there, there's a creation, um, and so, uh, or a creator. So, yeah, I thought, I thought it was really, but it, it's a, it's a fascinating book. It's profound and interesting and, uh, and yeah, so I don't know. Well, that's interesting. That's an interesting, uh, you know, bookend to my joy, which is all about the songs of Christmas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, Though I don't know that Christmas, I think, has become almost entirely a secular holiday. It's, it's. Sorry. I mean, there are lots of religious connotations to it too. But in fact, I just saw a bumper sticker the other day saying "Keep the Christ in Christmas." But um, yeah, and I and I'm not saying that um, that you know, again, that I think re- religion's bad, and you and that's, oh, I'm not thinking. I'm thing. not saying you did. No, no, yeah, no, like, you know, you but, know, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I so just to, yeah, go ahead. Fact check the uh, Safian Stevens uh, songs for Christmas is the name of the album. It is actually five a, a box set of five separate EPs okay. that he's from uh, between 2001 and 2006. He recorded a set each year oh, and put them out there for people to, and then he box setted them together nice. as a, as a gift to friends. Um, and so uh, it has yeah. like two hours of music 
So really like it's nice. got all everything you'd you'd want. And it's all like his take on those things. So, so they're really cool. beautiful coffee house kind of music that you can just sit there and just enjoy. Awesome. Songs for Christmas. Thank you. Stuff stuff on Stevens. All right. Awesome. All right. There you go. There you go. Yeah. And we'll catch you next time. In between. See you then. Bye now. <laughs>